You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and I'm very excited to talk with my guest today. We're going to be focusing on conservation optimism, which is a really exciting and I think critically important topic in uh, this new decade and, and new year. And so I'm really happy to have with me today to be talking to Julia Mignet, who works with conservation optimism which is a global community that's dedicated to sharing stories and other really important resources to help people like myself and all of our listeners from all backgrounds make a positive impact on wildlife and nature as a whole. So hello, Julia. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Angie. I'm really happy to be here today. Very excited to be on the podcast. Yes, it's going to be a very positive. I've got my I've got my lavender candle burning and my coffee, and I, I started my morning off with some yoga, so I just cannot wait for you to fill me with even more positive news and optimism about the wildlife and nature that we all care so dearly about. Yes, that's definitely important. You seem to be all on track so far. <laughs> so, well, it's still pretty early here. So, I mean, <laughs> I ha- I haven't turned on the news yet today. So that's probably a big help, right? Um, but yes, it's, it'll be so, so wonderful uh, for you to share with us what your organization does. And you are the outreach coordinator at Conservation Optimism. So I'm so happy that you're going to be reaching out to All Creatures Podcast today to uh, fill us with a lot of light and love for our animal friends in here in uh, 2020. So can you give me a little background about yourself? Yes. So um, I've got a mixed background in both biology and journalism. I started, so I always had these two passions for both animals and writing. Um, And when I was in high school, I considered for a while going into journalism, but there wasn't an option in France where I'm from to go straight after high school into journalism. So I ended up going into a zoology degree. And, you know, once you're in there, you're doing your bachelor degree for three years. It just seems logical to then keep going. 
So I kept going with a master's degree in conservation. And at that time, it was an international program. So I ended up being in multiple countries. That was very exciting. And as part of this program, I had to do my master thesis, which I didn't see turtle in, in Brazil. Uh, so again, very exciting. Oh, fun. Yeah. Which, what sea, happened which species is, of sea turtle? So it was, uh, it was pretty broad. Basically, I was working on data collected from helicopters. So they were just recording what they were seeing as sea turtles, but they couldn't wow. necessarily identify the species. Incredible. So, yeah, so that was a lot of fancy modelings and working on ArcGIS and R and doing lots of stats. <laughs> Our favourite. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and during that year, that's when I realised that I would rather talk about what other people were doing in terms of research than doing the research myself. And that's when I decided to do the swap. So I decided to go for another degree. And this time I moved to Cardiff University to do a degree in journalism. So that's what brought me really into the science communication world. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's really interesting when the journey is kind of, it's more of like an evolution as far as uh, loving animals and just wanting to conserve them and be around them and learn more about them. And there's not always this one size fits all. As a, as a child, I don't know about you, but loving animals, I was always told or encouraged that I should be a veterinarian. Yes. <laughs> and I, I have amazing veterinary friends. I've worked with a lot of students in the veterinary program. I've taught courses to some of them. Uh, but when, when I shadowed a veterinarian back in high school, I, I, I love the animal interactions, but I just realized it wasn't for me. But then it's kind of yeah. like, okay, back to the drawing board. So now what? And uh, flash forward uh, 20 some odd years and I'm still figuring it out. All I know is that, uh, yeah, I love animals. I love studying them. I love talking about them. I love talking to people <laughs> who love them. So uh, maybe maybe we're on to something here, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I actually did. Uh, I had a mini internship when I was about 15 years old with a zoo veterinarian. So I also had this experience of shadowing someone. And then I was like, ah. Uh, Maybe it's not exactly what I want to do. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I always encourage the students, the, the veterinary students that I get to work with, uh, that if they have interest in zoo veterinarian science or medicine, to go for it because it is an amazing profession because it, they're still learning so much. It's like the Wild West. And, yeah. and of course, they're getting really good at communicating with each other so they're not reinventing the wheel and they're publishing a lot of papers. But it, it, it's really quite a ruckus out there. I, a good friend of mine, uh, he he said one day I had to give an enema to a giant millipede. And then an hour later, I had to give, give an enema to an elephant. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> It's a very diverse job. Yes. It's not for the foolhearted. Uh, that's for sure. Um, but now with all your travels and your research and just being an animal person in general, do you have a favorite animal or a favorite animal in interaction from all your studies and travels? Uh, yes. So in terms of interaction, there's definitely one that often comes to mind when, when I think about it. Uh, so as part of my degree at some point, I did an internship in Brazil with an organization called Irakambi, and they're based in the Atlantic rainforest. I was sent there to do... Um, to do a survey of all the birds that were present in, in the area where they were working on, which was quite exciting, especially knowing that I had 
zero experience in Brazilian birds. <laughs> so it was quite a challenge. And basically I spent my days for a month and a half walking around, taking photos of every single bird I could see, and then coming back at night and looking at all the bird guides and trying to identify all the species that wow. I spotted on the day. Uh, so that was super interesting. And one day I was uh, walking around in a field and suddenly I saw a really big bird that I had never seen before. I got really excited. So I started walking, trying to get closer, slowly, very slowly. And it turned out to be a vulture species, but it was the most beautiful vulture species I had ever seen. It's actually called the lesser yellow-headed vulture. And basically it kind of looked like it has a massive beak with a giant hole in it, but then the face of the vulture is rainbow colored. It has all possible colors on it. It's just absolutely beautiful. Wow. And so for like, I'm not yeah. familiar with that. I'm going to have to Google it. <laughs> You'll have to Google it. It's, I mean, I find it really beautiful. And so I just managed to get so close to them. I was about two meters away. It was just this amazing interaction. And they just, they didn't care. They just stayed there looking at me. I could get all the photos I wanted. Um, and then I, yeah, I came back this evening being like, oh, I've seen these really cool vultures. Nobody had seen that before. So everyone was super excited. And yeah, it turned out that this species hadn't been seen in that specific area before. At least it, it hadn't been recorded by anyone. So it's known to be in that area of Brazil, but they were, everyone was really excited to just be able to add it to the list um, of species that, that they had there. Wow, that is so cool. I have a lot of friends that are birders and I'm, I'm like a wannabe birder, definitely <laughs> A wannabe bird nerd, I guess maybe is better, but I don't have a, I have a little bit of a list going, but I don't, I'm not updating it weekly or anything like that. But that for a lot of people would probably be like the ultimate bird to see, it sounds like. Yeah. And lots of people don't like vultures, but I always had like a thing for them. I always like them. I thought they're, they're pretty cool. So having one that is rainbow headed was just amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh gosh. I, what, what a cool experience. And it definitely is those interactions that keep you coming back for more and, and keep you optimistic uh, t for the future, right? When you see those sightings. Yes, definitely. And speaking of conservation and optimism, how did you move from the jungles of Brazil into journalism school and then land such an amazing job or opportunity working with a group like Conservation Optimism? So actually after, well, actually during my degree in journalism, um, I had the opportunity to still work on conservation issues. I did my dissertation in, um, in Kenya, looking at how it's important to involve local communities in conservation projects. So as part of this, I was doing lots of interviews, I was taking photos, and I turned this into multiple features. Uh, one of them was then published on Africa Geographic, which was quite exciting. Wow. So I always yeah. had that link with conservation still when I transitioned into the journalism world. And after my degree, I started looking for jobs. I was really keen on keeping that connection to conservation. So I was looking at either working for a magazine or a publication that had this link. So, you know, Monga Bay or BBC Wildlife magazines were definitely on my list or to be lending in a communication role. And I had the chance to be hired by Chester Zoo. So Chester Zoo in the it's in, in England, in the UK. And so I joined the team as their science and conservation communications officer at the time. 
which was very exciting because basically it allowed me to work with the PR and marketing team. It also allowed me to work with the scientists. I was writing press release. I was working on blogs, creating activities for events. It was just super diverse. And on the side of that as well, I launched um, a media platform called Incline. And that's that platform is very much about solutions journalism, which is about, you know, showcasing the positive stories that are happening around the world and how people are making a difference in their communities. So when I saw the job for conservation optimism, it was just the perfect mix for me because it had basically that, you know, communication and conservation aspect. But then it also had this solution based approach, which I was already doing in my free time through my own media platform. So that's how I got into becoming the outreach coordinator for conservation optimism. It's such a, a cool path. I mean, it is really just looking around and everything coming together and, like you said, hitting all the bells and whistles. And so what was it about conservation optimism that drew you to them as far as their missions and their goals? So I knew about conservation optimism because one of the PhD students who was involved with Chester Zoo had been to their first summit and so she had, you know, mentioned how it was such an amazing, vibrant event. She said she was, she was so happy to have been able to take part. So, you know, she came back full of energy. She was buzzing with, you know, all these people that were just sharing what's working in conservation and supporting each other. So through, through, through her, I got quite a good impression already of what conservation optimism was all about. But it was just also this idea that you had this hub for conservationists to go to and find some positive stories. I think that's what really got me into, into being interested in um, applying for the job because I was like, well, you know, it's all about developing this platform, making sure that these stories can be heard, making sure that people can find them. And then it was also very exciting because I was in charge of organizing the next event, which was, you know, a big task. So I knew that the role was going to be really diverse and that's what got me really excited about it as well. Yeah. Well, and you talk about this hub that is conservation optimism of scientists, journalists, conservationists, some in the field, some at home. How does your organization achieve the mission to communicate these stories of hope and awesome conservation that's happening throughout the world? So the key vision for conservation optimism is really that we believe that a world where wildlife and human flourish is possible. And so the two ways we, we think are very important to achieve that vision are on one side, we want to make sure that we share success and also failure to make sure that people can learn from them and potentially for the successes, replicate them and, you know, create, create bigger scale projects with what we've learned in other places. But the second aspect is also we want to make sure that everyone from every walk of life is just empowered to act for nature. And that's something that we feel is often not necessarily happening because people sometimes feel like, oh, my God, there's so much doom and gloom out there. How can I even make a difference? You know, people just think that it's such a massive. It's such a massive topic, you know, all the environmental challenges that we're facing at the moment, it can be a bit overwhelming. So the way we're trying to address that really is, so first we have our social media platforms are quite important to us. So on Twitter, especially, we've got almost about 10,000 followers now. And these followers are very active. Um, so for example, 
every day I arrive at work and I check our hashtag conservation optimism and there's always people sharing amazing stories from all over the world. So that's one big part of it in terms of, you know, just making sure that people can find these stories through the Twitter feed. But then a lot of it is also creating events and supporting conservationists, especially in terms of framing. So a lot of our members, because we have a network called Conservation now, we've got about over 65 organizations now that are on board. And when we ask them, you know, what, what do you want from us in terms of support? They all say, well, we want to help with how to frame our messages in a way that is optimistic. So at the moment, we're working on that by creating a toolkit. So we're going to have a workshop actually this week. So that's very exciting to have a lot of our different partners having a chat about how we can frame the messages in a more optimistic way. So once this toolkit is ready, then we believe it's going to be a really helpful tool for quite a lot of our members and, you know, the community overall in, in the conservation sector. Wow, that is such, it, it, well, it takes a village, I think, is what's key. And not one person or one group can do it alone. And so I think that's where the interconnectedness and the network or community, as you mentioned, or hub is just so important. And social media is obviously an amazing platform to be able to do that. And I always talk about on the podcast of filling your newsfeed with these beautiful groups that support animals and wildlife because it'll just make your feed that much better each day. Yeah. And for us, it's a lot um, about also creating content that we want everyone to be able to publish a blog if they have a conservation optimism story. We're very happy for people to send it to us and publish it online. We also um, currently working on a podcast of our own, so that's very exciting. Awesome! Hey, hey, <laughs> we can work together. We'll do some yeah. team podcasting. It's super fun. Yeah, it's been really exciting. We've been working on it for about a month and a half now. So, yeah, it's another we'll way. We'll have to a just launch sure. party. Yes, awesome. <laughs> we <Absolutely>. should. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be another way to really make sure that because we don't want to only engage with the conservationists. We also want to make sure that people who have an interest in conservation, but might not consider themselves necessarily as practitioners, get a chance to hear about these amazing stories and get a chance to just be inspired as well. So it's trying to reach all these different audiences, you know, making sure that we have things to support conservationists, things to support. I mean, we want we really want everyone to believe that they can be a conservationist. So, you know, we have this concept of. You don't have to have a degree in conservation to consider yourself a conservationist. So we're also very keen on working with artists who want to engage with conservation in certain ways, just trying to, to make sure that everyone feel really empowered and want to ask for nature. Awesome. And now, Julia, your organization does so much stuff. There's so a lot of resources um, and in really many different facets which you're able to share and spread conservation optimism. But before we jump into all the nuts and bolts about it, I just, I want to hear from you who lives and breathes and eats this conservation optimism every day with all the doom and gloom that's out there as far as um, conservation goes for both wildlife and then nature in general seems to be under attack in a lot of different places. There is, seems to be a lot of doom and gloom out there for organisms big and small, for famous ones, for less famous ones. So especially with the new decade coming, why is it so important to share and discuss these stories of conservation optimism? 
I think it's really important because so many people, as you said, they just keep seeing these doom and gloom narratives that keep coming, especially you know, on the media. You can see so many headlines like I was showing some to a group recently, some headlines that I had found recently and you had the insect apocalypse is here or like the obliteration of emperor penguins. And these type of headlines, they just make you feel like there's nothing you can do. You just read them and you're like, this is it. What can I do? This is so big. Oh, I, well, especially with all the uh, the bushfires in Australia recently. And when those numbers started coming out of Australia of a half a billion animals and maybe even a billion that were either harmed, injured, killed in these bushfires, I, I just wanted to put my head in the sand for a couple of days and rock back and forth in the fetal position. And I mean, and... And I get to share a lot of stories of hope and, and conservation optimism through our podcast. And it was just, it was just devastating. And so, uh, I had to, I had to go out there and do a little digging on my own. And that's pretty much how I stumbled upon your group of like, help, help me, help me, help me pick my head up out of the sand. Well, that's very much how we see it because, you know, so people, might stumble upon all these headlines or reading the news. But for conservationists, they live it. You know, it's their life. Every single day you go to work and you work on saving these species. And it can be extremely hard because we know we have many, many challenges. You know, conservation optimism is not about pretending that it's all fine and we're all good. It's just about saying, we know we have all these challenges, but what are the potential solutions? You know, what are people working on around the world to make to make a difference, to make things better. And I think you need this balance. You need to know about the issue for sure. You need to know about the challenges. You need to have that background. But then in, in the, you know, in the media or in articles that science communication officers write, you need to have that bit of solution in there as well. That's super important. So for us, it's really to make sure that people do have that balance and that if they need a bit of a pick me up, you know, if you're on a day being like, with what's happening in Australia, I, I, how can I keep going? Then you can go on conservation optimism, either like have a look at the blogs or finding what people are putting on Twitter and just get that bit of hope. Because for me, if you don't have that hope, if you think, you know, if you think it's doom and gloom, how do you get up in the morning? How do you wake up and go to work? For me, it's just impossible. So that's what we really want to provide to people, you know, just giving them these bits of information that are like, hey, we know there's all these things that are happening, but actually there is optimism here and there. And we've been tagged in a lot of stories recently about optimistic stories from Australia, you know, showing, hey, we know it's all terrible, but actually there's this organizations and they've managed to save that many birds. And, you know, there's this rare plant species and the, the firefighters have managed to to compound the fire so that it wouldn't reach it. And all of that just makes you believe that we can still make a difference because otherwise, you know, most conservationists wouldn't keep going. So I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I recently saw a story about a six-year-old um, that was creating koalas out of clay, like little clay figurines. Aww. And my son's six, so I was like, wow, that's you know, like they're the same age. But this young man was then selling them in in a very short time, I think under a week or two, he had raised twenty thousand dollars. Wow. To be sent directly uh to, you know, some groups that were in critical need of aid in helping care for koalas. And so it was stories like that where I'm like, a six year old? That is like incredible. And what people 
instead of, yeah, and that's when I decided to pick myself off, up, off the floor from rocking back and forth. And uh, my podcast partner and I did a, did a podcast about it where we looked at the numbers and we talked about the good and the bad and um, tried to focus, of course, more on the good. But that helped me just reading that little story of, wow, talk about one person and a little person, right? Making a, a huge, huge, and that's a lot of money. And so it it's things like that, that they don't get a lot of mainstream media, right? Yeah. But also I think it's even broader than this, you know, news in general, when you, when you see people who read lots of news and you talk to them about it, they're just like, I can't take it anymore. You know, it's just so much doom and gloom in all different kinds of ways. It's not just in the environmental sector. So yeah, I think it's important for people to be more mindful in where they get their news from as well. And just being able to pick which platforms you want to read on or, you know, where you want to find your stories, because actually that has a big influence as well. Absolutely. And so with that being said, do you have any recent stories of conservation optimists that you can share with me and the listeners of this podcast? Yes. So I've had a look this morning on our Twitter feed because that's where I find all my stories all the time. Uh, and we had so many interesting stuff coming in over the weekend. So, for example, we had recently someone who mentioned that local women were helping hogbill turtles in Solomon Islands. So it's a group called, um, I think it's Kawaki. And basically, they're giving turtle population there a boost. And you had this really great video. You could see the local community taking care of these turtles and then releasing them. Um, today as well, we could see a story about the government of Belize. Uh, they've signed the final declaration to have 70,000 acres of biological corridor created. So, you know, awesome. and yeah, it's amazing. And it's the first step to achieve. They want to have a full on corridor traversing the entire country from, from south to north. So, you know, it's just these stories that you don't necessarily hear. And then you're like, Oh, that's amazing. Why are yeah, we not I just talking about this? And that yeah. was all just, just from your Twitter feed today. This Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We also had yeah. a story about, um, a bird species. So the, the Guam, the Guam rail mm -hmm. was, which was a species that disappeared. It was, uh, thought to be extinct in, in a specific area and it's now making a comeback. So, you know, it's now been announced by the IUCN as critically endangered instead of extinct there, which is definitely a very positive move. So yeah. So this type of stories come through our Twitter feed every single day. You know, it's, it's amazing to see that people are tagging us on things that are happening worldwide as well. You know, you, we get every possible countries we get news from and people tag us. So it's, it's a good way to start the day really to just go have a look at what people have tagged us on and, and then, you know, start the day on a positive note. Oh, uh, yes. You just, you have your morning lavender candle, you do some yoga stretches, maybe have your coffee or tea or water, and then you, scroll through a little bit of positive conservation optimism stories and you are ready to get out there and exactly <laughs> and keep fighting the good fight right and, yeah and besides obviously all the wonderful integrated social media platforms which of course we'll highlight on both our show notes and then uh at the, towards the end of the podcast so people know how to find you uh you also mentioned a blog that's very prevalent on your website and filled with great stories. What are some of the other resources within your community of conservation optimists that people can access? 
So yes, so at the moment we we get regular blogs from. So every time we have a new member uh, in our network, we ask them to write a blog to introduce themselves to our community. And we're also working on lots of resources actually for these members. So for the organizations who have joined our network, we, we are trying to develop toolkits. So I mentioned earlier the toolkits on how to frame conservation messages in a more optimistic way. We also have resources on how to get started if you want to create your own conservation optimism regional hub. So that's something that people can do as well. So we're trying to make more of these of these toolkits and, you know, listening to what our members actually say they need and then get back to them. We're also working on um, our brand new podcast. So Good Natured Yay! is coming. Awesome. And that will be very much a podcast of, uh, so my co-host and I, Sophia and I will be talking to conservationists from various backgrounds can be, as I said, you know, we consider that if you're an artist and interested in conservation, everyone is, everyone can be a conservationist. So we're going to have these, these conversations with lots of different conservationists and asking them about, you know, what they work on, what they're doing, getting, getting this uh, uplifting vibe as well in, in the podcast so that people get to know a little bit more about what people are doing around the world in a, in a different format that the blogs really. Um, well, and, oh, and that's such an important media. A lot of our, followers and fans basically say that your podcast gets us through our morning commute. Uh, I, I don't know if you have a commute. I used to commute a lot in Chicago and the traffic is nuts. <laughs> and so and you're in the morning, you're trying to get to work and you're trying not to be late. I had all these animals that needed me to feed them and the weather was always crazy sometimes. <laughs> and so, but the, a podcast is a great way to listen while you drive. And especially in the morning when you're just tense about getting to work or thinking about the day ahead and worried about it or ain't have anxiety, I I could imagine a podcast dedicated to just great stories about what is happening in the world of conservation would be very helpful for sure. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, having people sharing their, their successes and what they've been working on. But also we really want to dive into potential failures and how they've learned from it. Cause that's something we believe is really important. And in conservation and potentially in science more broadly, we tend to not talk about failures. You know, you have papers published on what is working, not what is not working. So it's actually really interesting to ask people, you know, what have you struggled with through your careers and how have you overcome it or what have you learned from it so that other people can learn from it as well? So it's another aspect that we're really highlighting. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's always about not, you don't want to necessarily keep reinventing the wheel. Or I always say when I'm in the lab doing some research is, and it's actually coined from a friend of mine, but it's not called search because it doesn't happen the first time. It's called <laughs> research because you have to keep redoing it and redoing it and redoing it. And then as you mentioned, what ends up getting published typically is the final product or what you think is at least a stepping stone in the final product. And so, yeah, it's. Uh, I know for me, probably the things I've learned the most at in science have been the mistakes that I made. So those stick with you and then you just keep doing better. And so I, highlighting some of that is key, especially when you're talking about with animals, we were talking about reintroduction science and you know how important is it or, or in conservation in general, like what didn't work? Okay, let's not do that again. And or what is working? And is it and then of course being evidence-based and wanting to look at data, like is it working? And and all you know, the whole the whole process. So 
That is just so awesome. And you have along this journey, Conservation Optimism has some really cool partners. And one of them that I just am like, maybe they'll hire me someday is Oxford University. So <laughs> can you, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the groups that are helping your platform come to fruition? Yes. Yeah, so our, our founding director is uh, Professor E.J. Milner-Gulland, and she is at the head of Interdisciplinary Center for Conservation Science. And so this is a group based at the University of Oxford as part of the Department of Zoology. And they are a very interesting academic group working to address the challenges that humanity faces in halting the decline of global biodiversity. So they're a really interesting bunch of researchers doing stuff on illegal wildlife trade. Um, we've got researchers looking at reefs and human-made reefs. We've got people looking at sweet potatoes in in Papua New Guinea. We've got quite a range of researchers doing lots of really cool stuff, but it's always very applied and it's always very interdisciplinary as the name has it. So yes, quite a lot of really interesting people. Wow, that must be amazing to be surrounded by all of that like and the, the diversity of the different research projects and everything that they bring to the table. So yeah. Uh, and a lot of people who are working on conservation optimism are actually, we have a lot of volunteers and a lot of our volunteers, like, you know, people who do, who helps with the newsletter or people who do the editing of the blogs, they're, most of them are PhD students from, from the University of Oxford, you know, so they manage to like find the time on the side of their PhD to help with conservation optimism, which is also amazing. Yeah, it's not an easy task. That's, uh, uh, Chris and I started this podcast when I was finishing my dissertation. And I think the first time he mentioned it, I was a hard no. I do not <laughs> have time for those types of shenanigans right now. I'm dying over here. Uh, but obviously I'm, I'm glad that I, I made the time because that's the thing. It's all about little teeny blocks of time can come together and make something great. So, and now one of your partners is also Synchronicity Earth. Can you tell us a little bit about that group? A lot of their work is actually addressing overlooked and underfunded conservation challenges. So it's a lot of globally threatened species and ecosystem. Um, their key branches are they're doing research, they're doing also funding action, they want to inspire people. They do lots of um, projects that are also incorporating arts, which is uh, quite a, a nice overlap with conservation optimism. And, you know, they have lots of various programs from amphibians to looking at freshwater species and uh, the high end deep sea, for example. So doing lots of cool work and it's been a pleasure to to work with them. So the way it works with the partnership is at the moment, our, our director is actually also working for Synchronicity Earth. So as part of her job, she can work on conservation optimism as well. And we've had lots of other staff members from Synchronicity Earth involved as well with, you know, helping us with social media, helping us with organizing the summit. So it's, it's a really good partnership. That's awesome. And you mentioned the summit, uh, the one that you had this past year in 2019. Yeah. Is there another one coming up in the future? Uh, so far, there's not been any info on that. So I can't confirm or infirm that. But okay, well, we're, people we'll are very the, keen. As I say, we'll be at the edge of the seats. That's <laughs> something that I would love to get my foot in the door with that. And just being in a room full of people that are all have the same uh, mission and connection would just be really, I think, empowering. 
Yeah, it was amazing, actually. You know, we had about 250 people coming to Oxford from all over the world. And it was such a great event to have people share, again, you know, what's what's their successes, but also one of our most popular workshop was actually on failure. So again, sure. you really had that appetite for people. Um, they went to that workshop and say, oh, that was such amazing to have this, this space to just share about failure and, you know, just learn from each other. So it's definitely, you know, something that we, we're looking into doing more summits, but I can't tell you, you know, when, when the next one will be. Oh yeah. No worries. I, I can imagine those things are uh, really intense to plan, but if you do have one and you need a workshop on, uh, podcast failures of what what uh, Chris and I have learned throughout the past couple of years to uh, what works and what doesn't work. Uh, definitely, definitely let us know. Or I can just give you tips on the side. I'll give you the cliff notes. So that'd be podcast, great. You don't have to hit all the all the bumps that uh, we hit along the way. But it's been it's been a really fun and joyous ride. That's for sure. It's definitely a learning curve. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why we do it right. Uh, forever a student, a lifelong learner. That's for sure. And now I joked a little bit about lighting the candle and doing the the yoga routine, which isn't really a joke, but it's good stuff to get some positive thoughts and energy going. But in the big picture, what are some things that people need to do or do you have any techniques or advice for definitely myself and other colleagues and or our listeners in general about how to help combat conservation fatigue. How do we keep the hope? And what yeah. tools do you recommend to do that? So I think one of the most important thing really is to be more mindful about where you get your news from. And and actually, there's been a book written recently by uh, Judy Jackson, who looks into constructive journalism and solutions journalism. And so her book is how you can uh, balance your media diet. So it's more about journalism overall. You know, she looks at all kind of topics. But I think it's the same here for conservation. You know, if, if you know that reading the news makes you really depressed, then maybe you can find another platform to, to find your news. Or you can also look at obviously conservation optimism. You know, you'll find Absolutely. some, some positive. Yes. But we, I mean, we're hoping to see more and more messages framed in a more optimistic way as we reach out to as many organizations as possible. But I think, yeah, just being mindful with this. And, you know, if you're in, in the UK, you've got an amazing magazine called Positive News as well that has lots of very positive, uh, as the title says, um, <laughs> environmental stories. In the US, there is something called uh, solution journalism and they have a tracker. So you can look on their database and look for specific keywords and find stories that are solution based as well. So you're just making these choices of where do you go to get your information that can really be helpful. And then, you know, if you need that little pick me up, you can always check our hashtag on Twitter and get your little dose of optimism as well. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I, I think a media diet is definitely what a lot of us need to go on and get rid of the dramatic clickbait. Uh, and that's because that's a lot of times why they're doing it. And so I know I fall victim to it sometimes because I see these, as you mentioned, these really dramatic words. But then when you actually read the article, it's been a little bit blown out of proportion or, or as you mentioned, it's just spinning on the negative and not focusing on the positive. Yeah. And there's a lot of um, slow journalism appearing as well. So, you know, you have magazines that have decided that they only have two or three issues of the magazine a year, but it means that they really dig 
into the topic and they really take the time to cover issues. So it might still be gloomy in the way it's framed, but at least you get like a more solid background. You really get to understand what the challenges are. Whereas sometimes I feel, you know, if you're talking about the forest, the Amazon burning, for example, you know, lots of the articles didn't really give you enough background info to really understand what was happening. Exactly. So I think these type of uh, magazines are really good for that as well, because you, they just, they just have more time to really look into an issue and seeing how it evolves through time. And now, Julia, what do you say to people that might just say, you know what? It's too late. Saving these species are too expensive. It's not going to work. How, what would you offer to these people to encourage and inspire or counter their thinking that it's just all doom and gloom, it's too late? I think there's lots of very powerful examples out there to showcase that actually, you know, it's never too late. We've seen example, I think there's been a movie recently, a, a short film released about the work that Carl Jones has been doing in Mauritius. And so he was working on trying to protect the Mauritius kestrel and the numbers were dramatically low. I think there was only a handful of individuals left in, in the wild. And he decided to take in upon himself to try to save the species and started breeding the species and really working on it. And now the population is doing really well, you know, and there was only a handful of them left. So it's really interesting to see there are more examples of that. You know, there's lots of species where we thought this is it. It's not going to bounce back. This is, this is over. And actually somehow sometimes nature really surprises us as well. There's been a lot of species as well that were thought to be extinct that have been rediscovered, which is another way, I think, for these people to get inspired. Uh, actually, there's a whole website called Lost and Found Nature, and they look at example of species that have been extinct, but then were rediscovered. So they have all these really inspiring stories of expedition re rediscovering species. And it's another really cool way to realize that actually we never know, you know, sometimes... Sometimes species just reappear when you least expect it, or sometimes you realize that they weren't extinct in the first place. So, yes, and just a few activities or a few people or one person can can really make a difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's why it's so important to put these stories out there so that people realize that it is possible to to still make a difference. You know, it's not. And also, the thing is, if you just say it's all doom and gloom it's too expensive. We can't do anything. Then what do you do? How do you, how do you keep going every day? Like right. what's, what's the point? Yes, I agree so much. And now what should someone or an organization do if they want to join your conservation optimism team and become a member? So the best way to do that is really to reach out to us through, you know, you've got our email on the website or contact us directly. We've got people contacting us on Facebook or on Twitter and just send us a message. Tell us why you would like to join. We always happy to hear about people and get back to you. In terms of organizations as well, if you want your organization to join our Conservation Now network, there is an embedded form on the website for your organization to join straight away. So there's just a few questions that you have to fill. And then I will be receiving a notification and we will review your application. So that's a very quick process. And, you know, you've got all the benefits written on there. It's all explained, you know, what you'll gain and what we expect from you. So it's another great way for organizations to get involved with conservation optimism. But we're always keen for more people to join the movement. 
Awesome. Chris, if you're listening, I have a new task for us. <laughs> but Julia said it's simple. It's simple for us to fill out paperwork to become a team member. So I'm all about uh, increasing our network, right? Because it's, it's so, it's, it does take a village and it's so nice to have support and share ideas. Um, and I, I obviously want to invite to Oxford sometime too. So. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> obviously. Uh, awesome. But now, but what if somebody, obviously doesn't have an organization or just in general, they don't necessarily want to become a team member. They just want to support what you do or learn more about what you do. Uh, how do you recommend they follow your platform or get involved? The best thing to do in that case really is, well, first they can, you know, follow us on all the different social media platforms we've got. So we've got, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Um, so you can find us there. And also you can register on the website to receive our newsletter. And that's where we'll let you know of all the exciting upcoming things in the conservation optimism world. So, for example, we're going to announce very soon that we are reopening entries for our second film festival. So, you know, if that's something that you're keen on sending a film or knowing about, then make sure to register online to the newsletter so that you can receive all the info very soon. And your website is beautiful. It's very informative. The blog is right there. People can enjoy it, the stories, and it's really easy to find. It's just at conservationoptimism.org. But Julia, what are your other Twitter and Instagram handles uh, if people want to use those platforms on their smartphone? Yeah, so on Twitter, you can find us at conserveoptimism, but then you can also use the hashtag, which is conservationoptimism, to then follow all the stories. And on Instagram, we're at, at Conservation Optimism. And then on Facebook and LinkedIn, if you just type Conservation Optimism in there, you will find us. Oh, yeah. I'm following you. And it's definitely <laughs> made my mornings bright. That's for sure. So awesome. And now, how about this? Are you on the TikTok? <laughs> Am I on the TikTok? Yeah, it's like the newest crave of social media. No, I have to say we're not on TikTok yet. <laughs> I'm not. E we're not either. And Chris and I just don't know if we can do it because it's, you know, it's a whole nother platform. And it's actually for, it's more, or it started with um, those micro videos. Yes. So really short videos and uh, yeah, I, people singing a lot of times and things like that. And I know I'm sounding like an old lady here because I'm like, what's the TikTok? I always tease, <laughs> I tease my students in class and they, they just laugh at me. Um, but yes, it's the new rage. And so Chris and I are trying to figure out how, how, how to do that and add that. <laughs> that I feel so. a few years ago, it was all about Snapchat. So it's, yeah. It might I be know. The new, just, it's so hard. It's the so new hard thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, uh, it, I guess it keeps you on your toes. That's for sure. And it so, does. <laughs> um, but yes, for now, definitely listeners, please check out their website or Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and a podcast. So when that gets up and running, Julia, you'll definitely have to send me some notifications so we can share that on, of course. Our, on all of our social media uh, platforms because we love to support other podcasters that talk about wildlife and really cool stories. And so it's, it's definitely a, a global community and we, we here at all creatures podcast want to be part of it. And, uh, we, we do looking at some, uh, when we cover individual species and looking at some of the statistics and what's going on, it, it can get a little doomy gloomy. And so 
we need, we need you in our lives to help counterbalance that. So <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, we were able to have this conversation today and get to know your organization better and get to know you better. And I just am really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. So thank you, Julia. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. It's very exciting to talk to you. And I'm sure we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch. Yes, of course. I'll let you know when the podcast is out and, you know, your invite to Oxford might come one day. Oh, yes. 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 Keep me guessing. That's good. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Oh, well, thank you. Have a lovely day. Thanks. Thanks.